If you happen to be a guest today, every sermon in this series, we've started with some practical hints and tips as a way of uh, kind of honoring the book of James, which is the most spiritually practical book in the New Testament. So here are your hints for today. Let's say you're going to hang a picture uh, in, uh, in your house, and you've got to use a real tiny nail because it's a, a fairly tiny uh, picture, and you don't want to put a great big nail in the wall, but you find that holding the nail with your fingers gets in the way of the hammer. Just take a pocket comb and uh, use the tines in the pocket comb or the teeth in there to hold the nail while you hammer it in. Oh, how I wished I had known that years ago. That would have been a really helpful thing. And if you're drilling a hole for a larger hanger, then use a folded post-it note beneath where the hole is going to be drilled, and it will catch the gypsum dust that comes from your drywall. Good thoughts. Got lots of cords behind your computer or your entertainment center? Use bread bag clips to label them so that you know where the cords go. And if you've got scratches in wood trim or doors or furniture, Rub the meat of a walnut on the scratch, and the oil in the nut will help hide the scratch. And speaking of nuts, in this text, James reminds us that we need to act like we've got some sense. How's that for a segue from the helpful hints? In the passage that we're going to study this morning, it really is a study of contrasts that call us to make sensible, reasonable choices. And so these are the sensible choices that James offers us this morning. Here's the first one. Choose the right wisdom. Now look in verses 13 of chapter 3 through 16. You can just follow along. You've got your Bible open or you can follow along on the screen. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But... If you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, of the devil. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and every evil practice. James gets right to the point. You think you're wise? Good. Show it. Demonstrate it. Prove to me by your actions that you really do have wisdom. I'm convinced that if James lived today and he lived in the United States of America, he would settle in the state of Missouri because Missouri is the show-me state. And that's exactly what James is about in his book. You say all these things, but words are cheap. Show me what you believe in your actions and deeds. And again, it goes for wisdom. Oh, so you think you're wise. Then show me God's wisdom at work in your life. James describes the actions and attitude that point to an earthly or a godless wisdom, which in reality is no wisdom at all. Did you notice in the text that the word wisdom has parentheses or um, quote marks around it? Because James is its kind of playing on words. He talks about earthly wisdom, but in reality, there's no wisdom in that. He says, if you carry around old grudges, if you struggle to forgive, or if you are intent on satisfying your selfish and carnal desires, then you're not wise. Such foolishness is not from God. Then James makes this powerful assessment. Envious and selfish people will stop at nothing. You know, when you stop to think about it, almost every crime that is committed at its very heart and basis grows out of envy or selfishness. 
In contrast to the world's imprudence, James tells us about the wisdom that comes from above. Look in verses 17 and 18. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and, and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. Now, I wish we had time to take a look at each of these individual words. They're really, they're really great, but I, I'm convinced you already got that. You know, how, how hard is it to understand the word sincere or considerate or being full of mercy? You see, it, it, we don't need a lot of explanation. We just need a lot of implementation. These verses can be summed up in this thought, be kind and considerate of others. Be kind and considerate of others. That is the wisdom of God at work in us when you show kindness and mercy and consideration for others. In other words, think before you act. Think before you speak. After a few years of marriage, a wife got down her wedding dress and tried it on, and as she feared, it, it didn't fit anymore, and she began to cry. And when her husband asked what was wrong, she responded, oh, she says, my wedding dress won't fit anymore. And in an attempt to console her, he said, oh, honey, don't cry. We'll buy you a bigger one. <laughs> now, act like you got some sense, all right? <laughs> Think before you speak. Think before you act. Choose to be wise by God's standards, not the standards that come from a selfish and envious world. Then James says, this is the second choice. Choose the right motive. Now look at verse 1 of chapter 4. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires of battle within you? You want something, but you don't get it. And you kill and you covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and you fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives. That you may spend what you get on your pleasures. James gets real personal here with our motives. Do you know why you fight and quarrel, he says? Such battles are the result of impure desires in our lives. Do you remember Alexander Dumas' uh, classic novel, The Count of Monte Cristo? Edmond Dantes and Ferdinand Mondego are the best of friends. They grow up together, they share this friendship but they both fall in love with the same girl. And she falls in love with Edmund, and they are pledged to be married. And Mondego, he, he just can't get past the fact that he cannot have her. He wants her. He's envious, and he's selfish. And that envy and selfish ambition lead to a deep-seated anger. He wants the woman that is pledged to his best friend, but his selfishness is greater than their friendship and so the rest of the story is filled with sadness, deceit, brutality, revenge, and murder. When we are motivated by simply worldly desires, the end result is never pretty. By the way, when the New Testament talks about don't love this world, um, it, it's not talking about don't, don't love the creation that God gave us. It's not talking about that because, you know, most of us think, oh, we, we love to be out in God's creation. We love to stand on the seashore and watch the ocean. We love to stand at the base of a mountain. We love to be out at night and see the stars in the sky. We love the creatures of God's creation. That's not what it means when it says don't love the world. I mean, after all, this is the place we've lived. God has made it a beautiful place. We should take care of this place and enjoy this place. But... Um, when he talks about loving the world, he's talking about the philosophies and the ideals and the patterns of this world. 
the things that this world urges us to live by that leave God out of the picture. As a matter of fact, the word desire in this text is actually the, the ancient word hedone, from which we get our English word hedonism. And the definition of hedonism is the pursuit of pleasure as life's supreme goal. There is a constant battle within the life of a Christian between the physical life and the spiritual life. And James tells us that the reason we do not have is that we do not ask as we battle between the physical and the spiritual. The things that we know we need and the things that we so desperately want sometimes are at odds. And he says, if you need something, ask God. He is the giver of every good and perfect gift. But the second problem is this, we don't ask with the right motives. So oftentimes when we ask, we ask for personal gain. God, I want this so that I can enjoy it. That's the problem. Now, God is not against us having things nice, but if that becomes our supreme goal in life, then God has a problem with it. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 10 and 11, we read this. Now, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. You, you get what the motive is? God says, I will bless you so that you can become a blessing to others. I will give to you so you can turn around and share with others. Now, this is not a conscripted kind of sharing. It is a voluntary sharing. But that's the motive that, that he's looking for in this text. He's looking for this motive that means God will supply for us what we cannot supply for ourselves so we can turn around and give it to others. Remember the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If I give all I have to feed the poor, but I do not have love, it means nothing. It takes courage to do the right thing from the right motive. So let me ask you, do you have the courage of your convictions? Is, you, is your motivation a motivation that is built into by the Spirit of God? Mark Kincaid sent me this picture a couple weeks ago of this historic marker. And if you can't read the words, this is what it says. Near this spot, Samuel Whitmore, then 80 years old, killed three British soldiers, April 19th, 1775. He was shot, bayoneted, beaten, and left for dead, but recovered and lived to be 98 years of age. Wow. Whitmore was a farmer motivated by the longing and the desire for freedom. This clash of history happened as the British forces were returning to Boston from the battles of Lexington and Concord. This is at the very outset of the Revolutionary War. As Americans, we owe him a debt of gratitude for being courageous enough to put his life on the line for his patriotic convictions. And in 2005, he was proclaimed the official state hero of Massachusetts. I would hope that our longing for spiritual freedom would motivate us to use what God has given us to serve him honorably. Who might look at you and consider you to be their spiritual hero? Act like you got some sense and be motivated to do what is right in the eyes of God. The third and last thing that James gives us here is choose the right relationship. In verse 4 of chapter 4, he says, You adulterous people. He's speaking spiritually here. Don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. 
Or do you think Scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely? But he gives us more grace. That is why the Scripture says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. In this portion of Scripture, James contrasts a relationship with the world to a relationship with God. Again, buying into the philosophies and the theories of the, of the world. And, and basically, he says you can't have both. You can be a friend with the world or you can be a friend with God, but you can't be a friend of both. To be a friend with the world means you are an enemy of God. To be a friend of God makes you an enemy of the world. James holds nothing back. He is in our face on this one. And he basically teaches us what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, no man can serve two masters. He will either hate the one and love the other, or he will despise the one and be devoted to the other. You cannot serve both God and material things. Or as James puts it, you can't love God and you can't love the world at the same time. And again, I remind you, when the New Testament speaks of the world, it warns us about the philosophies of this world that stand in contrast to God or would draw us away from God. There's a very vivid picture of this very thing in the Old Testament. <clears throat> in the book of Genesis, we read about Lot and his family. Lot was a nephew of Abraham. And Lot and his wife and two daughters lived among the cities of the plains, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And when the wickedness of those cities brought about the judgment of God and God decided to destroy the cities, he sent angels to Lot's home to help them leave. They were the only righteous people that lived in that area. And so the angels warned Lot and his wife and his two daughters. He said, now when you leave the city and you hear the the heavens open and the fire and brimstone start coming down. Said, so don't, don't look back. Don't look back. Just run for your lives. Run to the mountains. Hide. Don't look back. The story tells us that as Lot and his wife and his two daughters were fleeing the Holocaust, and that's exactly what it was. It was just this terrible devastation. Lot's wife stopped, and she turned, and she looked back. And the Bible says that she was changed into a pillar of salt. Now, I don't know if that means a, a column-like pillar. I don't know if that means like a pile of salt. Some have guessed that because of the nature of the destruction of those cities was very much like a nuclear blast that when she stopped and, sh and paused and didn't get out of the way that she was merely vaporized that, like one would be in such a moment. I, I don't know exactly how it happened. But I can tell you this. It wasn't a quick glance over the shoulder to see if everything was safe on either side or that no one was coming up on them. This was where she stopped in her tracks and she turned and she looked back and the word means with longing, with longing in her heart. In other words, that's my home. I don't want to go where God is taking me. I want to go back home. That's the where I love. That's the world that means the most to me. And she paid for it with her life. You see, you, you, you can't love the world and you can't love God at the same time because only God provides a meaningful relationship and purpose in this world. And yet, knowing that, we still struggle with sincere commitment and loyalty to God. We want to be His 100%. We want to do what's right. We want to grow this relationship, but we just struggle. You have a hard time making a commitment and making it stick. I'm reminded of a young lady who spent a considerable amount of money on a photo shoot so she would have a beautiful picture to give to her fiancé. And when she gave it to him, she signed the back of the picture like this. My dearest Jim, I love you with all of my heart. I love you more and more with every passing day. I am yours for all eternity. Love forever. Susan. P.S. 
if we ever break up, I want this picture back. <laughs> That's sort of how we look at commitment. We got all these fine words that we throw at it, make it sound like we're committed to the very... And yet sometimes we struggle to keep that commitment with God. British theologian C.S. Lewis described a relationship with God more than half a century ago with these words. A car is made to run on petrol, gasoline, and it would not run properly on anything else. Now, God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel for our spirits. We were designed to burn that, or the food our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other. God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from himself because there is because it is not there. C.S. Lewis says, as a car runs on gasoline and cannot run on anything else, so the human soul runs only on a relationship with God. And I'm here to tell you that if you're running on any other relationship, you're running on empty. Or to put it in a far less philosophical way, if you could have a homemade deep dish apple pie, why would you settle for a hostess Twinkie? Now, don't get me wrong. I like Twinkies. I mean, they're, they're tasty, especially if they're free. You know, if somebody gives you a Twinkie, boy, that's a, that's a treat. But a cream-filled yellow sponge cake just can't compare to homemade apple pie. Why settle for what the world offers when God offers you friendship of a lifetime? Act like you've got some sense and be committed to a relationship with him. And then James ends up that passage that we start with these words in verse 7. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter into mourning and your joy into gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. That sounds kind of like a depressing passage. It's not intended to be. And, and James is speaking spiritually here, using metaphors to describe what should be taking place in our soul. And he uses the power of comparison and contrast, and he does it with paired phrases. And here's the first pair. Resist and come near. Resist the devil and he will flee. Come near to God and God will come near to you. The word resist is a military word that means to stand against. It means to barricade your mind, your heart, your soul, and don't let the enemy troops through whatever it costs you. In the book of Ephesians, Paul reminds us who the enemy is. In Ephesians 6, verse 12, he says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood. In other words, folks, it's not some other person. It's not some other country. Those are not our enemies as Christians, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly realms. It's the dark side. It's Satan and his demonic forces. That is our enemy. There are forces that you and I cannot see who are at war with the purposes of God, and we are the spoils of the battle. That's why we must resist. Somebody put it this way, never give the devil a ride. He'll always want to drive. And let me tell you, when you travel with Satan, he plans the trip, he chooses the routes, and he picks the destination, and you don't want to end up in his destination. So resist the devil. Sometimes you won't see his blows coming. Sometimes it'll feel like you just get knocked down. You see, because our battle is not against the things of this world, it's against the prince of darkness who tries to defeat us and destroy our faith. <clears throat> Boxer went into the ring 
against his opponent, and oh my goodness, just got whooped in the first round, and the bell goes off, he goes back to his seat, his trainer reaches through the, through the uh, ring cords there and, and, and cables, and he pats him on the back, and he says, you go in there and get him, he hasn't laid a glove on you, okay, goes in the second round, it's worse than the first round, he just gets beat to a pulp, and kind of slinks back to the stool, and the trainer reaches through the ropes, and he pats him on the back, and he says, you go in and get him this time. He hadn't laid a glove on you. Goes in the third round. This time, he gets knocked to the, to the, to the floor. Only is saved by the bell before the count of 10 is over, and he drags himself back to the stool, sits down. The trainer reaches through, pats him on the back, and he says, you go in and get him this time. He hadn't laid a glove on you. And the boxer looked at his trainer, and he said, all right, I'll get him this time. But you keep your eye on that referee because somebody has beaten me to a pulp in there. <laughs> now, I'm here to tell you this morning that we fight an enemy that you cannot see. And there are days when he beats you to a pulp, which is why you have to work so hard at staying committed to this relationship with Jesus Christ. It's been said, try Jesus. If you don't like him, the devil will always take you back. He has a very generous return policy, you know. He'll take you back even if you don't have the receipt. So act like you've got some sense and stay close to God. The second pair is wash and purify. This is not a contrast, but a repetition for emphasis. If you want to humble yourself before God, then your actions and mind will focus on God. He's really saying, clean up your act. Clean it up outwardly and clean it up inwardly. It takes both. One without the other doesn't work. You can't say, well, my heart is right with God, therefore whatever I do in my body doesn't really matter. There's a real good theological term for that, hogwash. It does matter. If your faith doesn't impact every area of your life, it's not real faith. If you can compartmentalize your faith, so that your faith does not impact your business ethics or your social ethics, then I'm here to tell you, you don't have any real ethics at all. Remember, James is into this show-me mode. The person who is not consistent is called double-minded. That literally means two souls. And it describes someone with a double allegiance. And I'm here to tell you, God has no double agents in his employ. So act like you've got some sense and purify yourself inwardly and outwardly and live consistently. Let your faith and your relationship with God permeate every aspect of your life. Because if it doesn't, if you can compartmentalize, then you really don't have faith at all. Here's the third pair, grieve and change. Now, God is not calling us to give up smiles and laughter in order to live for him. That, that, that's not the point. He's talking about spiritually grieve over the sin in our life. He wants us a, to have a genuine sorrow. And when we have that genuine sorrow, when we stop trying to justify our sinful decisions as the right actions, then it brings about a change, and that change is what happens in repentance. It's the 180-degree turn when you are grieved over what you've done, and God changes your heart and your life. That's when a relationship with him really begins to take hold. And when you have an ongoing relationship with Jesus Christ, it, ah, that's the greatest relationship in the world. And it makes every other relationship you have even better. Tomorrow we celebrate Memorial Day, created to remember all those 
who have been wise enough and motivated enough to realize that some things are worth dying for. We dare not forget their sacrifice. In like manner, do you realize that God deemed you and me worth dying for? That thought just is overwhelming to me. That God thought we were worth dying for. As we remember those who've died for our freedom, so let us remember that his sacrifice was for us. We ought to act like we've got some sense and genuinely live for him. If you don't have a relationship with him this morning, while we stand and while we sing, you come to the Christ.